talk tonight about the practice of loving-kindness. And I know John talked about this some last night also. I think it's a great theme for the midpoint of the retreat. Your qualities of loving-kindness and compassion get a lot of testing in these days. So hopefully this offers a little more support. I'd like to talk about loving-kindness. <laughs> I don't need to say the rest tonight. And I'm going to do something that, uh, for someone sitting in this position, is one of the greatest acts of renunciation. I'm going to try to talk less than an hour. And in fact, I'm going to try to keep it to about 40 minutes, because I want to talk a little about uh, working with the metta practice as you are practicing Vipassana here. And we haven't had a lot of time to take questions about the practice of metta in the context of Vipassana practice. So I want to try to leave about 20 minutes at the end tonight for questions, if uh, you have any. So I'll try to uh, talk for the first about two-thirds and then leave about the last third for questions. If anybody sees me going uh, flagrantly over, you're welcome to raise your hand and show time out. It's said in the Buddhist tradition that just as a bird really needs two wings to fly, our practice needs two wings in order to soar, in order to come to its full ripening and maturity. And these are said to be the wings of wisdom, and in one tradition, compassion. In our tradition, we could say love or loving kindness. So the wing of wisdom is that which sees the way to freedom, is what sees the Four Noble Truths, it's what sees how we get caught and how we find freedom in every moment. And it's only wisdom that has this capacity. So wisdom is really the heart of our path. Vipassana is our primary practice because it is the wisdom practice in our tradition, and its essence is the unfolding of this truth, of freedom, of liberation. But just as important is the side, you could call it love, you could call it compassion, let's say the side of heartfulness, of the human being. Because where this isn't developed, there's not a sweetness, there's not a beauty, there's not a delight in life. That kind of delight, if we take in our own life, I feel is what really has the potential to reach out and transform others, to inspire them, to encourage them, to make them feel safe and comforted and reassured in whatever line of work we find ourselves. And where that heart quality is there, it's such a great gift to the whole world, such a beautiful thing to share. To some extent, the Vipassana practice by itself encourages this opening of heart. It really asks for this opening of heart. In every moment, the practice challenges us to open with real acceptance and non-conflict to our present moment experience. Not to hang on when it's pleasant and not to resist when it's unpleasant. That takes a great deal of heartfulness, a great deal of giving 
of ourselves moment after moment. For some people, that opening may be enough. My personal observation, some people walking the path of Vipassana practice find that their hearts naturally and spontaneously open to a great degree, to a a lovely degree, just through this one central practice. But also in my observation, there are people for whom that doesn't happen so easily or so spontaneously. And I count myself in the second group. Where people's nature tends to be uh, quite emotional, I think the opening of the heart proceeds rather spontaneously with a wisdom practice. But in my case, I felt that uh, my opening of the heart, because I tend to be fairly cerebral, was really accelerated and really supported by the undertaking of specific heart practices, the metta practice being the primary one. So I'd really like to encourage all of you to explore the metta practice to as great a degree as you feel drawn to it, both in the context of this Vipassana retreat, I'll say more about how to balance, and also to consider specific uh, intensive metta retreats. I think it's a beautiful, a beautiful way to open. In our tradition, which comes out of the Theravadan Buddhism of Thailand, Burma, and Sri Lanka, metta is considered uh, the primary of the noble emotions. In other Buddhist traditions, it, it's probably compassion. But for us, it's considered to be this quality of loving-kindness, of friendliness, of warmth. And it's so extraordinary when uh, we meet someone who has touched that in a really deep way. Some teachers have that deep heart quality and transmit that force of inspiration. I love to tell stories about the Dalai Lama, partly because I just like to hear them again, um, but also because he always manifests that in his being, in his presence. He was at a peace conference in uh, San Francisco a couple of summers ago. And you know how in Asia, when people greet one another, they put their hands at their chest. And in the West, when we greet one another, we tend to put our hand out to shake the other person's hand. So Dalai Lama, because he's such a beautiful bridge between cultures, was going through the whole conference representing both worlds in this kind of way. <laughs> one hand at the chest, one hand extended in shaking. Always out, you know, to greet people. There was a lot of security at the conference. So there were guards at every door because he's a uh, head of state as well as head of religion. Every time he went in and out through the doors to the outside, he would stop and acknowledge the security guards. He'd say a few words and he'd thank them for their work. And it said, somebody said that at the end of the conference, the security guards were all in love with him. Because you could just imagine how many celebrities have gone in and out of those doors and never acknowledged that there was a person there. And the Dalai Lama just took the time to make that personal connection, to feel their heart, to touch them. The the noble qualities of mind are talked about in this list called the Brahma-viharas. Brahma is heavenly, vihara is abode or home. And you can think of these as the uh, divine abidings. I like to think of them as where consciousness hangs out when it's in a really heavenly state. They're the qualities of metta or loving-kindness, 
compassion or karuna, of joy or mudita, and equanimity or upeka. You're probably very familiar with them from watching the signs on the buildings every day. Um, we thought it was a nice way to name the building so you could, you, know, you could be staying in a state of joy or equanimity without having to sound schmaltzy about it. We also, you know, we thought the Four Noble Truths might be kind of good, but we didn't want you staying in suffering, craving, <laughs> you know, cessation and path. So the Brahma Viharas were a little more appealing. In our tradition, we really hold loving kindness as the foundation of all the Brahma Viharas. It's the uh, heart quality that develops an openness and a receptivity and a friendliness to everything we encounter. When that openness has been uh, generated, has been established, the other qualities come about spontaneously. When that open heart looks upon a state of suffering, whether it's in ourselves or in someone else, the natural response of that heart is compassion. Compassion is said to be the quivering of the open heart in response to suffering. When that open heart meets happiness, ours or another's, the natural response is to resonate with that happiness with a sympathetic kind of joy, a resonant joy or an appreciative joy. This is the joy of mudita, of being able to take delight in others' happiness. And when that open heart simply rests in its own experience, it can hold all the joys and sorrows of life in this beautiful balance that is equanimity. So the state of equanimity is not about having feelings go away, but it's rather about a balance and a spaciousness of mind that can hold them all. The times of suffering and difficulty, the times of joy and delight, and not be so deeply swayed by either side of our experience. The power of equanimity. This quality of love, of course, is something we've all known very deeply, certainly as children, and many times in our adult life. And I feel that for a lot of us, the whole pull of spiritual life is to uncover this quality that we know is within us, that we know is intrinsic, and be able to abide there. This really was, when I look back, this was really my main motivation in coming into Dharma practice. I had, as I mentioned before, come out of the 60s with a lot of uh, confusion and a state of unhappiness and a lot of fear, and I just wasn't willing to live a life where love wasn't accessible, where it wasn't available to me day by day. For myself, I think it was the main reason that I took up practice. This call has always been so strong. Rumi put it this way. You know, he uses the word you to mean the beloved, the quality of the divine that evokes this feeling of love in us. He said, I have three things to say. First, when I was apart from you, this world did not exist, nor any other. Second, whatever I was looking for was always you. Third, why did I ever learn to count to three? The heart of the spiritual path. 
In doing our metta practice, sometimes it might feel like we're contriving something. You know, people come into interviews and they say, well, I like the idea of the metta, but these phrases just seem so phony. It seems so contrived. Can't I just kind of hang out with that feeling of love in my heart? And of course you can, you know, if it's always there, you know, more happiness to you. The phrases are beautiful because they have a way of actually developing that quality of love. To me, it's an amazing gift that such a practice exists on this earth, a practice to evoke the quality of love from our hearts. But ultimately, it's not something we have to fabricate. It's part of our own nature. I'm reminded of that because one of the most loving people I've ever met in my life was my grandmother. She was born in the countryside in North Carolina about 1890, was poor all her life, lived with one of the most uh, cantankerous and ornery men that I've ever known, who was my grandfather, and through it all maintained this really sweet, unfailingly sweet disposition. And she gave so much love to all of us as kids when we would come to visit them. My uh, sort of most uh, striking memory of her is every time we'd come into her house for a visit, she would give us a big hug and she would put her lips in the hollow of our neck and sort of uh, grope around and sort of muzzle us down there and say that she was trying to steal our sugar. She said, I know it's here somewhere. I'm going to steal your sugar. That was just what she did to every kid who came in her house. And she hadn't done any Buddhist practice at all. (laughs) She hadn't even been in psychotherapy. So So it's not that we actually have to drum up something that's not there. It's more a question of taking away the obscurations, taking away what's concealing or hiding the love. The Buddha said, this mind is naturally radiant and brightly shining, but it's colored by visiting impurities. So we need to be reminded from time to time that that's at our center, that love is really at our heart. Again, it's something that the Dalai Lama is so good at reminding us of. He was at a conference uh, last fall, I think it was, in Charlottesville, Virginia, And it was a conference for Nobel Peace Prize winners. So there were a lot of heavyweights there. You know, he was there and Bishop Bishop Desmond Tutu and the other living Nobel Peace Prize laureate. So it was a very august and solemn gathering. And uh, they were going outside to have their pictures taken all together. And Desmond Tutu was standing in front of the Dalai Lama. And as they were posing for the camera, the Dalai Lama reached down and ripped off Desmond Tutu's hat. He was wearing this uh, cap. The Dalai Lama just very playfully reached down and started to rip it off, and Desmond Tutu grabbed it back on his head. There's actually a photograph that uh, recorded the incident. I'll put it on the bulletin board so you can see. And the Dalai Lama's just breaking up in one of his big belly laughs (laughs) after doing that. Had a good joke on old Desmond Tutu. A beautiful spontaneity. So one of the benefits of metta practice, I really feel strongly, is that it brings us happiness. 
It's kind of a paradox in a way because we start off doing the metta practice thinking a lot about other people. We do it wishing for their happiness, wishing for their safety, and wishing for their well-being. And maybe it helps them. I hope that it does, and actually I believe that it does. You all have probably heard about the study that was done on patients in a hospital in San Francisco where a group of people were recovering from operations and illness. Their names were um, divided into two groups. Half of the group, the names were sent to a Christian prayer group, and prayers were said for them. The other half was a control group, and nothing was done for them. And the study showed that the 50% who were prayed for had statistically significant um, higher rates of recovery than those who weren't prayed for. I believe in this kind of power of metta, although I can't prove it. But we may never know whether our loving kindness for someone else helps them or not. But what we can definitely know is that it really affects us. It really helps us. It really touches us. Sylvia talked a few nights ago about the 11 benefits of loving kindness. Qualities like you sleep easily, you wake easily, and you have pleasant dreams. People love you, devas love you, animals love you, and devas protect you. The mind is joyful, the face is serene, and you die peacefully. Sounds pretty good. One of the people who comes to Spirit Rock every year is a Thai teacher named Ajahn Jumnian. He's one of the happiest people that I've ever met. He sits up on the stage and he, uh, you know, his teaching goes through, his verbal teaching, you know, goes through spells of being really interesting and spells of being a little dry. He's someone who can talk pretty much for eight hours a day and never exhaust his lore of stories and Dharma uh, teachings. So it goes through periods of being more and less interesting, and I sort of fade in and out of listening to that. But what I can always come back and tune into is just his happiness level. He's just kind of sitting up at the front of the room, radiating these waves of well-being and joy. Sometimes we'll, uh, Jack or someone will ask him, what would you like to do today? And he said, well, are there people who want to hear the Dharma? I'd like to go talk the Dharma to them. And usually there are, so we take him to the hall and he speaks the Dharma. And some days we'll say, well, Ajahn Jimmy, what would you like to do today? Would you like to see the Golden Gate Bridge? Or would you like to go into San Francisco? Would you like to go out to Point Reyes? Are there people who'd like to hear the Dharma? (laughs) He says, you know, but anything you want to do will make me happy. If you want to take me to uh, San Francisco, I'd be happy with that. If you want to take me out in nature, I'll be happy with that. And if there are people who'd like to hear the Dharma, I'm happy there too. He's always happy. He actually said on one of his visits that he hasn't had any anger for 25 years. And I, I believed it from, from his energy, from his vibration of joy. One of the ways I feel that uh, the loving-kindness practice brings happiness is that it opens our practice to all of life. It connects us with all living things in a really natural way, in a way that becomes an integral part of our Dharma practice. 
you know, with Vipassana practice, we can do it in a way that it gets a little self-centered. It's not meant to be that way. That's not the way it's supposed to happen. But we can take it that way. So that our Vipassana practice can just all become uh, revolving around um, my pain, my difficulties, my neuroses, my progress, uh, my happiness, my path, my liberation. It can kind of become a little uh, self-enclosed. But with the loving-kindness practice, we, we stay with ourselves some, and then it opens us up to our benefactors, our friends, people we don't know very well, people we have difficulty with, and then all beings everywhere. Shantideva, who was the ninth century Indian sage, put it this way, Whatever joy there is in this world, all comes from wanting others to be happy. And whatever suffering there is in this world, all comes from wanting only myself to be happy. This is a really beautiful expression. Part of what happens as we engage the practice of loving-kindness is that we break down some of the barriers that we hold between ourselves and the rest of the world. And it can remove the sense of loneliness that our own concepts have created, the self-created isolation of the view of an individual self. This is from Sharon Salzberg's book, Loving Kindness. The concepts of separateness that have dominated our lives have produced tremendous suffering. What we have taken to be real is in fact a hallucination. The division between self and other is the degradation of our highest human potential, the liberation of the mind that is love. The critical moment of the path which breaks open the loving heart is the realization that we have never existed as separate, isolated beings. When wisdom recognizes our oneness and sees the interconnectedness of all beings, it fills us with a degree of happiness that transforms our lives. This practice was originally taught by the Buddha as a way uh, to be protected from fear. He had instructed a group of uh, monks to go off and meditate in the woods at night. And they went out and sat down in a grove in the dark. And they came running back in a few minutes and said, we can't meditate there. That place is full of spirits. We sat down and they started making sounds in all the trees. And they were casting lights on us. And they made these terrible smells. We can't stay in that grove. It's haunted. The Buddha said, well, I'll give you the only protection you'll need. He taught them the metta practice, and he sent them back into the grove. And they came back the next day, and he asked them how it was. And they said, uh, it changed everything. So we started sending out thoughts of loving kindness and well-wishing to all the spirits around us, and they turned completely friendly. And uh, they said that they wanted to take care of us. So it transformed the world around and it transformed them. Someone mentioned in an interview the other day that they had had to go out in the world in the middle of the retreat and they had decided to take up uh, the loving-kindness practice while they were in the middle of a big public place 
you know, making a quick transition from this environment to a crowd out there can be a little challenging. So they were feeling a little shaky, a little nervous in that setting. Started doing the metta practice and it immediately filled them with that sense of connectedness and took away the sense of fear and unease. It's really a great practice to do out in the world. For a lot, a lot of years while I was commuting to work at Microsoft, I tried to do mindfulness while I was driving. And it's difficult because the mind gets pulled out so often. So I switched to loving-kindness practice after a while. And it was great because there was always somebody nearby. You notice that on Bay Area freeways? There's always somebody nearby. So there was always somebody to direct loving-kindness to. You know, even the people who cut in front of us really quickly. Oh, may you be happy too. <laughs> it's also a great uh, antidote for aversion and ill will. It's said that anger really can't stick in a mind that's loving, in a mind that's friendly, because the mind has become so spacious and so open, the anger just can't find a foothold. The analogy is that it's like throwing paint through space and it can't adhere to the space because there's nothing there to stick on. As you do the practice of uh, metta, you know, don't, you don't need to have too grandiose an idea about what you're supposed to be feeling. You're not supposed to be feeling anything particularly grandiose. You know, sometimes we talk about metta as boundless, unconditional love, and, you know, it seems really uh, remote, and maybe the Buddha could touch it, or Jesus, but for us it doesn't seem very approachable. Think about metta just as friendliness, just as a spark of connectedness, and it has qualities like um, acceptance of ourselves and others. It has the quality of patience, has the quality just of friendship, quality of connection. Really the gist of it is to see another, see ourself, and just have the sincere thought, oh, I hope you're well. To look in the eyes of another human being or to hold them in our mind's eye and just to feel, I hope things are good for you. I hope life is going well. That intent, that feeling, is really the gist of the metta practice. If you want to experiment with doing this practice as a real art, then before each phrase, have that feeling of connection and well-wishing in your heart, and then say the phrase. So that the phrases, in a way, just kind of flow out of this feeling, oh, I hope you're well. That's really the heart of it. That's the seed. And if that feeling is there, the phrases will start to do their magic. They will start to unfold the love that's in us. So you really, as you do the metta practice, you don't need to force any particular feeling. You don't even have to try to feel any particular way as you say the phrases. Just let yourself feel that connection the intention of wishing well, and then just trust that the phrases will evoke that feeling in a stronger and stronger way. And don't worry if it feels dry or mechanical or rote or that nothing's happening. Just trust that what you're doing 
is planting seeds. The seed of your good intention and then watering it with the phrases. And after that, you don't have to do anything else. And nature will take care of the rest. Nature will take care of bringing all those feelings forward. It's a little bit like starting a fire by rubbing two sticks together. It really takes a lot of effort at first. And you rub and rub and you get blisters on your fingers and you think nothing's ever going to happen. And then finally, after rubbing for a long time, this little wisp of smoke comes up. And then that wisp turns into a little flame. You give it some more shavings. It turns into a bigger flame and a bigger flame and so on. So there's this little bit of contriving at first in the metta practice. The rubbing of the stick is the saying of the phrases. But then once it gets going, it takes its own life. It takes its own warmth and heat. You can just trust in that. I want to talk a little about how to integrate the metta practice with Vipassana. So far we've been giving some guided loving-kindness once a day for about 15 minutes. And you can also bring it into the start or the end of each sitting for 5 or 10 minutes if you'd like to do that. If you connect, if you find it helpful. You can also use the metta practice when you feel like you've gotten into kind of a difficult place in the Vipassana practice. If some particular um, mood or state of mind is coming up strongly, could be anger or fear or sadness, and you start to feel kind of overwhelmed by it, you can um, switch to do the metta practice for a little while and see if that brings in a little bit different flavor. See if it brings in a little different quality in the mind, a little more softness, a little more acceptance that can just soften the mind around the difficulty. So you can use it if you feel overwhelmed. You can use it if you feel a little stuck, like you've been relating to a difficult experience for some time, and the mind is kind of getting uh, stuck in that groove. Bring in a little metta practice to just see if it'll transform the moment. Or if you just find yourself kind of getting contracted and tense and a little hard in the Vipassana practice, you can use the metta just to soften a bit. Sometimes if we're connecting with really difficult experiences of fear or anger or sadness, it can seem like this wish for happiness is too theoretical. Me? Happy? No way. Not possible. If it feels like the metta just is too idealistic or too remote, you can also try at that point the compassion practice. Compassion is like loving kindness, but there's only one phrase. It's something like, May I be free from this pain and sorrow. And you can adjust the wording to to more touch what you're actually experiencing. May I be free from this fear or may I be free from this grief. So you're relating directly with the feeling, but it starts to bring out a different quality of the heart. There was a workshop today uh, down in the lower meditation hall I don't know if you had any sort of strays wandering up here. It's actually a benefit for Spirit Rock, um, put on by a fellow named Byron Brown, who's a teacher in uh, the Diamond Heart approach. And he's written a book called Soul Without Shame that teaches all about how to deal with the inner critic or the judging part of our nature. Same thing that Eugene explored through the image of Mara. 
And in his uh, benefit today, the workshop was along the same theme. He said that the single most useful thing in working with the judging mind is to bring compassion to ourselves. So also anytime you feel that there's too much criticism, not enough self-acceptance, you can use the compassion phrase, may I be free from this pain and sorrow. You might also sort of keep in mind the metta and the compassion for the people who are arriving tomorrow evening. As a way to make space, as a way to accept. And also, you know, they're going to be going through all the adjustments of the start of a retreat. Remember how that felt? Wow. Not easy. I just want to talk a little bit about um, the different beings that the practice opens us up to. The image from the text is that metta is like a river that runs downhill in a stream and fills a pool that it runs into. And then as it fills that pool, that pool overflows and runs down the hill into the next pool. And then that pool gets filled and it overflows and runs down the hill into the next pool. This is the image of developing the loving kindness first with the people who are easy for us, with ourselves, with a benefactor, or with a friend. And the idea is that when the metta for each of those people is overflowing, we let it run down the hill to the next person. And then let that build up and overflow. And then it run down, runs down the hill to someone we don't know very well, a neutral person. And then it fills up and runs down the hill to someone that we may have difficulty with. And then it fills up and it runs and it overflows to all beings everywhere. There's a story about why we start with ourself. And it said that um, at the time of the Buddha, one of his supporters was the king of Kosala, named Pasanadi, who had a wife uh, named Malika and many consorts. And one day the king asked uh, Malika, who was his queen, said, um, who do you love the most? And uh, being the king, he thought he knew what the answer should be to that question. And she was also a follower of the Buddhist teachings, and she immediately said back to him, why myself, of course? And he sort of shocked and took umbrage, and he said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, yes, I, I do. I look, and honestly, I love myself the most. So they thought they'd better go straighten this out, so they went to the best marriage counselor that they knew, who was the Buddha, explained the situation to him and said, who's right? And the Buddha said, why, the queen is right. Of course. And then he, he uh, said, well, I was still an unenlightened bodhisattva. I visited all the quarters of the universe with my mind and found no one dearer to me than myself. So likewise does every person hold himself or herself most dear. And who loves oneself can never harm another. This is why we start with ourselves as really the foundation of the loving-kindness practice. So as we develop the phrases as they relate to, to ourselves, let them be universal also. Let them be phrases that also can apply to anyone. So that when you take up all the other people, the same phrases more or less can work. You can let them evolve. Um, but you don't want to get too specific with anyone. There was a woman at a meta retreat in Vancouver 
And she was using the phrase, uh, may I live with ease. And then she was doing her son as a friend. And uh, her son was about 20 years old and in college. And she said, when I got to this phrase, may you live with ease, my mind rebelled. I thought he's living with too much ease already. (laughs) You know, he's staying at home and he's lying around in bed all day and I'm paying his bills and his tuition and his books. I don't want him to live with any more ease. And the phrase she wanted to use was, um, may you develop some backbone. (laughs) And I said, well, I'm not sure that's really meta. Um, It sounds like you're trying to fix him. So with the meta phrases, you know, we want to have the quality of acceptance, acceptance of people as they are, and not a phrase that tries to fix somebody. As you play with the phrases, hopefully you'll find a good rhythm with them. Once the phrases become rhythmic for you, then one leads to the next, to the next, to the next. I started off um, working with long phrases, and over time they've evolved to be quite short. And now the short ones have that same rhythm. But when I was working with the long phrases and getting them into a rhythm, they actually um, transmuted at one point of time into a country and western song which I won't inflict on you because it might stay around for a while. But um, Sylvia actually said, and she said it publicly, so I'm sure she won't mind my sharing it, that she often, in fact, most of the time sings her metaphrases. And that's a way to really keep them rhythmic, and that rhythmicness keeps them present, keeps them going. So then working with a benefactor or a friend This is lovely because in the metta practice, the practice really is to gladden the mind. That's the whole point of it, to make the mind joyful. So we get to hang out with these people that we love, like our benefactors and our friends. The idea in the metta practice is that you go where the metta is easiest. Isn't this a great invitation? Go where it's easiest. If it's easiest with your benefactor, go there. If it's easiest with yourself, spend most of your time there. If it's easiest with a friend, go there. It's really different for different people. One meditator said that they had to be with themselves for three years before they could open up to somebody else, before they could include anybody else in their loving kindness. Other people have to be with a benefactor or a friend for a long time before they can bring any of that love home for themselves. One meditator said the only being that she could feel any sort of loving-kindness for, for months and months, was a stuffed animal. So that's fine, too. Really, whatever works, whether it's a child or a pet or a friend, wherever the metta flows, that's the place to start. And then trust that it can just flow down in those cascading pools to all the other beings that you want to turn to so that eventually it becomes boundless. As it says in the Metta Sutta, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world. This is said to be the supreme abiding. I think that's probably a good place to stop for now with the talk. Um, I'll just actually read one more quotation about the benefits of loving-kindness, where the Buddha said, 
Friends, whatever kinds of worldly merit there are, from qualities like generosity and giving and so on, sila, whatever kinds of worldly merit there are, all are not worth one-sixteenth part of the heart deliverance of loving-kindness. In shining and beaming and radiance, the heart deliverance of loving-kindness far excels them all. Just as whatever light there is of stars, all is not worth one-sixteenth part of the radiance of the moon. So, we have some time left, so we can open up for comments about your metta practice, if there's anything you'd like to share, if you have questions about metta practice. Yeah, I get really confused between <clears throat> the Vipassana instruction is so much to me to see things as they are. Mm-hmm. And for me, a big part of my practice for this retreat, my objective was to find out who I am and mm-hmm. see myself exactly as I am. Mm-hmm. I've done uh, many years of, of meta practice. It's been almost exclusive. And it always felt to me like I was trying to change something. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just wondering what's that difference between leaving things as they are and having this kind of feeling of changing, you know, mm-hmm. making mm-hmm. myself happy if I'm mm-hmm. not happy. Yeah. Or happy if I'm, not, if I'm angry. You just talked about if you're having trouble with anger, you can bring your meta in and then begin to transform it. Sure. But isn't, there more, isn't it more effective to just let it be and really study it and learn its inherent nature? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a good question. And... This aspect of Vipassana practice, that it is only to see things exactly as they are and not to transform them, you know, it has a beautiful elegance to it. There's a simplicity and a cleanness. Um, It's easy to get behind a practice like that. And it can also become a ground for a little bit of um, intellectual favoritism you might say. Some people actually look down on the metta practice because it's not intellectually as clean or elegant as vipassana or mindfulness practice. But actually, mindfulness practice is also primarily a skillful means. You know, we primarily use mindfulness practice in order to purify the heart of greed, aversion, and delusion. It's a factor of the path. And when it has done its work, of purification of greed, aversion, and delusion, it's not needed anymore. You know, as the Buddha said, when you reach the other shore, you can toss the raft away. So mindfulness, similarly, although it has this beautiful elegance and cleanliness about it, is just another skillful means that's really designed for purification. So I would look on the metta practice also in the light of skillful means. If it can be brought to bear on a moment where there's suffering, and it can transform that moment of suffering into a moment of ease or happiness or relaxation, that's a great um, path factor also. You know, basically the way the Buddha defined right effort was that it's to um, develop wholesome states of mind and abandon unwholesome states of mind. So whatever tools we can uh, find that are consistent with our practice to do that, I think are really wonderful. And the metta practice isn't really about making ourselves happy by our will in that moment. The only effort of will in the metta practice 
is this sort of wishing ourselves well. It's just looking on ourselves and saying, I hope you're happy. That's the right amount of effort. Or that's the right effort in metta. It's not to um, try and put ourselves in a happy place or make ourselves happy. But just connecting with that sincere wish. Oh, I really hope, you know, for my own happiness. Or I really hope for your happiness. That's all. Well, I found myself in a rather interesting quandary because I came in wanting to do Vipassana. One of my teachers found that I was very attached to some Vipassana results. He recommended mm-hmm. metta. Mm-hmm. I'd done so much metta I didn't want to do it. I became very angry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> angry being recommended a loving kindness. <laughs> <laughs> I think I there's... very disappointed in myself because of the yeah. whole cycle of things. Uh, there must be a poetic justice in there somewhere. <laughs> Uh, I guess it builds humility if nothing else. <laughs> Thanks. Other questions, Dara? Not so much a question, but um, John spoke, and it's my experience mm-hmm. as well, that um, there's really no difference between metta and wisdom. Mm-hmm. That they, mm-hmm. they meet, and that's mm-hmm. pointed out in some of the Hindu traditions too, that mm-hmm. you, know, you can go the bhakti path or, you know, the yana path, and you make, you make it to the same mm-hmm. place. Mm-hmm. And I just, um, I just had an interesting phrase come up in my mind before the talk, because mm-hmm. I've been really working with a real cold wounding that's so tender that it's like I can't do anything with it, mm-hmm. you know? So I've really just been trying to sort of surround it with compassion. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's like, any way to approach it was too much, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so I kept having to like mm-hmm. come back and mm-hmm, come back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I had this phrase come up. It's like, oh, it's like I have to be so gentle. It's like I'm not there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I realized what I thought. Yeah. I'm not there. Yeah. You know that it's the I that creates mm-hmm. the suffering. Yeah, yeah. And that's the wisdom side. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I just. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. Um, I I agree that um, in our deepest nature, the wisdom and the love are just joined like that. It's, you know, you might say that the most fundamental part of us is emptiness. But as soon as something comes into being, as soon as something appears in that emptiness, there's, there's love there. There's love and wisdom. I think they're the most fundamental parts of us. And so developing wisdom supports love. Developing love supports wisdom. It's actually hard to stay loving without wisdom. And that's kind of what you're describing. And then there's that miracle that when we can be with suffering without adding anything to it, the suffering transforms by itself. That's a great teaching. When we can step out of the way of our own knots. They unravel all by themselves. I've worked with both, you know, obviously a lot of Vipassana and a lot of metta practice in relation to knots, and I found for myself that the traditional compassion phrase, may I be free from this pain and sorrow, sometimes seemed a little too intrusive. It was like, you know, get out of here. You know, a little aversive undertone. May I want to be free from you. 
So I, I softened it for myself and often used the phrase, I care about this pain or I care about this sorrow. And that was a softer, less um, active way for me to be with it. Thank you. Michael? you ever do metta out loud? You know, I haven't, but I have heard Sylvia do it out loud. So I know it can be done. That's a great idea. You know, they say that actions of speech are more karmically impactful than actions of thought, so it might be stronger. Have you played with it out loud? Well, I haven't done metta per se, but yes, uh-huh. uh, in my tradition. Uh-huh, yeah. The same teaching that it, it makes a big difference to uh, vocalize. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of the things I find when I do say things out loud is my mind doesn't tend to wander as much. You know, it's harder to have other thoughts while you're actually speaking than to have other thoughts while you're just thinking. So that could be skillful too. We would request that you not do it in here during silent meditation times, but that might be a great way to play. Steve? I was wondering about the relationship between Metta and Bodhicitta in Tibetan tradition, because there they always say that if you can't achieve full Buddha without Bodhicitta, you can just take you out of yourself. Right, right. We don't say that in this tradition. But, uh, you know, we say that the Buddha actually invented the Bodhisattva path, and we base our teachings on the teaching, the classical teachings of the Buddha. Um, the Bodhicitta, for those of you who haven't encountered it, um, is the, basically the idea that because our inner work in transforming us changes our impact on the world, we can actually take that truth and bring it back to our practice at the beginning as a motivation. So the teaching of bodhicitta, which literally means the um, awakened mind, or I think a better title is the awakening heart, is that we can as part of our own motivation, begin to include the idea that we're practicing deepening our own understanding in order best to benefit others. It seems like a big stretch in the beginning of practice. But the more you practice, the more you can see how the ripples start to go out. And in a group like this, I bet there are a lot of people here whose work lives have been really transformed by your experiences in meditation. That it's impacted your teaching, or your social work, or your parenting, or your education, or a number of people may be taking it into mindfulness-based stress reduction. So that I suspect, or your writing, that for a lot of you, you're already seeing that the degree to which you've transformed yourself is already having an impact in the world around you. So bodhicitta is to take that reflection and to bring it back into our own motivation and to say, yeah, this is why I want to practice. I want to practice in order that I can be of most help in the world. Because if I don't purify within, there's a limit to how useful I can be in helping others to come out of suffering. So there's a very deep connection between bodhicitta and metta or between bodhicitta and compassion. It's really taking that caring for other people (laughs) 
and bringing it back into the very motivation that sustains our practice. So I think they're very, very closely linked. And I think they really support each other. I'll probably talk a little more about um, bodhicitta in a few nights. Thanks. Una? Mm-hmm. And what I'm not clear about is that you know, whenever you retreat, you take like a couple of days for yourself, a couple of days for any factor removed. And one of the things that I really don't understand about how, how it works is when do you choose which kind of meta? Mm-hmm. And like, I remember Sylvia talking us in one of the retreats about taking three months of the meta for ourselves. Let me answer the second one first because I think it's a little simpler. If the situation externally is such that you really can't do anything to benefit them, then metta can just be a way of yourself coming to more peace with that reality, with that fact. And then I think it's skillful. If there is in fact something you could, you could be doing, but you might use the metta in order not to feel the pain of wanting to do, that could be an avoidance. But if there's really nothing you can do, then the most important thing is to be at peace within yourself about that reality. Whether it's sending metta to yourself, sending metta to them, that may be the most skillful thing you can do in that setting. So I don't think it's an avoidance. And in terms of metta in daily life, it's really up to you um, who you feel drawn to use as your focus for the loving-kindness. And it's absolutely fine to take yourself for long periods of time. What I usually do in my daily metta practice is do myself a little bit and either a benefactor or a friend for a little bit. So I do a little of me and a little of somebody else. But there are times when I might really feel like doing all beings for a long time or a particular friend. The nice thing about going through all the categories is that you learn that it can work with anybody. That's, you know, that's a core teaching. It can work with people we like, with people we dislike, with people that we don't know. Once you know that, then you can start to activate the metta in any relationship in your life. Do you have some morning where you get up and you're in good mood and you say, I'm going to do my enemies today, I'm in good mood? <laughs> if they're coming up, I sure do. 
I actually, I'll share a little more about that because um, in the past year I've had, uh, I've had a difficult relationship with someone and it was coming into my metta practice a lot. You know, I'd be doing metta and trying to generate these caring thoughts and all and then I'd find this situation coming in and I'd get, start getting really angry about it. And I started to look at the anger more closely because in most of the Buddhist texts, the word that's used um, for the second hindrance, for example, in the list of the five hindrances, the word is not anger. The word that's most often used, at least how it's translated, is ill will. It's a translation of the Pali Vyapada. Ill will. And I started to let that resonate a little bit in my mind, and it really changed my understanding of what metta is. Because I saw that what was going on when I was angry at someone is, I wanted them to feel bad. In my anger, it's actually said in the text, it's like picking up a hot coal and getting ready to throw it at somebody else. But before it can reach them, it burns me. The other analogy that's used is it's like um, picking up a pile of excrement and wanting to soil somebody else. But before it soils them, it soiled me. And I started to realize that I was really wishing this other person to feel bad. That was really what was going on in my anger. And that's really what ill will is. We want someone else to feel bad. And I thought, I don't need to do that. And so I started doing metta for them. And it was just actually, it was just a little shift to see, oh, I actually can wish that they feel okay. I could sincerely wish that they feel okay, even though I was upset with them. That was not a very big step. Now, it didn't make me like them any better, but I no longer wished them ill. And so I actually then found it very easy, anytime the anger would start to come up, I'd just make that little step from ill will to goodwill, and I'd start practicing metta for them. And it was very accessible. It didn't mean that I you know, fell in love with them. It just meant I stopped wishing them bad. So it's very, very, I found it very, very helpful with people outside. Okay, one more question. Chris. You used as an example that story about the control group and people who were praying mm-hmm. being prayed for and the people who weren't. And I, I'm wondering if, you, if, um, if it would be fair to say that meta is supposed to include intense prayer. Mm. I think that's a... I've never heard the yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because I, it, it used to feel yeah. like eating cardboard to me. <laughs> because it seemed yeah. like wishful thinking. And then I think of it that way myself. I do think of it as the form of prayer in our practice. And, you know, there are two ways to look at prayer. One is we pray in order to get the results. But honestly, that's just attachment. The other way to look at it is that we pray because it purifies our heart. And I think that's the truth of the benefit of prayer. When we pray, we open our heart to all the possibilities of the universe. We state our wish, which is, I really wish that all beings are happy and healthy and safe. We state it even as we know that's not always true. So we kind of let go of the result, even as we say the wish. 
But the wish can really be true. The wish is really wholesome. And that opens us up in that really receptive um, way that takes, kind of takes the individual will out of the situation. So I think it's a lot like prayer in that. Yeah, thank you. Okay, let's close here. It's um, just about 8.15, and in a minute it will be time uh, for walking. But before we close and before you leave, uh, this is Marie's last night up on the podium with us. And uh, she wanted to say a farewell. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.